welcome to Novel Thoughts, a weekly book chat podcast hosted by me, Sapphire Bates. And me, Joseph Dance. Two book lovers from Ramsgate, East Kent. This is the podcast for the big readers and the book lovers. Once a month, we deep dive on one particular book, maybe an old favourite or something new and exciting, and we will read and discuss it. The rest of the time, we're spoiler-free, covering everything from new releases, old gems you might have missed, long lists, short lists, author spotlights, as well as the occasional interview. We'll also take questions from you, our lovely listeners. Welcome to our first author spotlight of 2024. I am really, (laughs) I'm waving my arms around and Joseph's laughing at me, but I'm really genuinely excited about this. So for these episodes, we'll be choosing an author, perhaps a writer you might be familiar with, or maybe someone who's passed under your radar. And then we'll be going through their back catalogue, rating and reviewing their best books and giving you some suggestions on where to start. Before we get into any of that, Joseph, have you read anything good recently? What, what do you want to share with me? I have read a few very good books, but before we get on to books, I need to say happy birthday. Oh, thank you. How old are you now, Sapphire? 30, and I'm so happy about it. Welcome to not my decade, but the one before. How are you finding it? Really good. I, I love getting older and I, I feel like... I already feel like maybe I'm getting wiser. I know it's only been like a couple of days, but I I just love it. I love... A brave statement. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm kind of taking the piss, but I've always wanted to be in my 30s because I'm a homebody and I feel like now is my era where I can stay at home. And uh, I mean, I've been doing that anyway, but I shall continue to. <laughs> More of not, the same. Yeah, and not be judged for it. Well, fantastic. And hopefully you had a really lovely day. I did. Thank you. Great. Shall I tell you about what I've been reading? Yes, yes. Give me books. I read The End We Start From. So this was originally published by Picador back in 2017, but is currently having a bit of a moment because a film adaptation starring Jodie Comer. Have you heard of her? She's quite famous. I love her. Killing Eve. Oh, I love her so much. Amazing. And Benedict Cumberbatch is, I think it's coming out any day soon. It's probably this summer. Most Mm. big films are now coming out in the summer. They don't really release anything in the spring, do they? Um, Makes no sense to me because we're all at home in the winter, so... Yeah, exactly. Hollywood executives, what are you thinking? Anyway, I hadn't read The Harpy, her second book. Oh, you have. Mm. Did you enjoy it? Yes, but I haven't read the first, I haven't read this one that you've you're talking about. Cuz this is actually older. Yeah. yeah. So, so this is my first Megan Hunter as it stands. The story is set in a dystopian near future UK where biblical level flooding has displaced a large proportion of the UK population. And it seems like London has been hit pretty badly in this novel. I think we can presume this is due to climate change, but it's it's never really explicitly said. But I've heard Megan Hunter talk about this book and she's called it a climate change fable. Okay. So the main character is a nameless woman who's just given birth to her baby, Zeb. And she gets out of London just as the seawater rushes in and destroys the city. Wait, the seawater? I thought the sea was quite far away from London. I guess it's the seawater coming in through the estuary. So the river water. This is the thing. It's never really... The river water. It's never really explained. Maybe it's rushed across land. Maybe it's come from the estuary. Mm. But whatever's happened, the, the sea level has risen. Okay, so it's just kind of like... It's kind of one of those books where it's like, this is the situation, deal with it, because I'm not giving you much backstory. Drops you straight into the middle of it. So she escapes London, and then the rest of the book follows her as she, well, I guess she moves around the country looking for higher ground, and we meet the other displaced people she comes across, and we see what she has to to do to keep herself and her newborn baby alive. Mm. 
the way it's told is not like an ultra-violent view of societal collapse like you get in, in books like The Road by Cormac mm. McCarthy. Have you read that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there are no cannibals or anything like that here. It doesn't feel that apocalyptic. There's a lot of rioting and people fighting for food and resources and, and people around her do die, but the violence never feels gratuitous and it's always off-screen. It's kind of like dystopian light, is how I, Dyst- I would <laughs> dystopian think Dystopian light. Because I think you've got dystopian where, like, the world falls to pieces and everything just goes to shit. People turn out to be awful, awful humans and, as you say, things like cannibals yeah. or whatever or just fighting for the little that there is or being violent for violence's Abs- sake. Absolutely. This feels the way you're explaining it, a little bit more softer. I kind of feel like if the book had gone on for longer, we might have got to the bad stuff. But it's kind of at the start of the collapse. All right, got you. I thought the relationship between the main character, the mother, and her child was very well drawn. Despite the awfulness of everything that's happening around her, there are lots of very tender moments of her finding joy in her new child, his smell, his learning to walk, the noises he makes. It's all quite cute in that sense. Mm. And it's a totally believable portrait of a new parent completely losing themselves in the world of their new child. Yeah. I really like the prose style of the novel too. It's not a long book. It's about 140 pages and it has these really short poetic sentences and there's there's lots of white space on the page and it almost feels like the fragmentary style of the writing it's mirroring the free fall, the breakdown of society that's playing out in the narrative. Also, so clever. It is. <laughs> no, it's clever that you've noticed that. My brain would never put those things together. This is why you're on this show. Thank you. Have I? Uh, this is my audition. Yeah, you've you've earned your spot. <laughs> <laughs> my spot. I could leave Sainsbury's. Also, interestingly, and I do like novels that do this. There are no character names. Everyone except the baby is just referred to by a letter. So again, you feel like everything is slightly unmoored from Mm. reality, almost giving it the feeling of a dream or a nightmare. Overall, I did enjoy the book, but I personally felt there wasn't enough of a sense of real threat Mm -hmm. to keep the dramatic tension of the story going, to keep it where it needed to be. And even though the main character finds herself in some pretty unpleasant situations, I never really worried about her. Perhaps it is a matter of personal taste, but I got a lot more out of novels like Still Aside by Simon Jones Mm -hmm. and They by Kay Dick, which was rediscovered recently. And they both focus on similar themes of environmental and social breakdown, but employ a little bit more background menace to keep the plot ticking over. Have you read Burnham Wood? I've got the paperback. I really want to read this. Yeah, me too. I'm just thinking... I haven't read it, like so an I don't know. But yeah, it yeah. Is, it's climate change. It's got that dystopian vibes, but I don't think it's like super dark dystopian. I love poetic, dreamy writing, but I think I'm in my thriller era. I need something with mm. a bit of plot. I mean, you know my thoughts on dreamy, poetic. Evocative. <laughs> Lyrical. <laughs> but anyway. Anyway. I, I, <laughs> anyway. I would rate this. I'd, I would recommend it. And I'm looking forward to seeing the film. Are you going to read The Harpy? Because I really liked The Harpy. I want to read The Harpy. Yeah, I read the blurb of The Harpy a couple of days ago and it's, it's hooked me. It's pulled me in. It's really weird, but... I'm guessing body horror. Uh... Don't tell me, don't tell me. That's the only book I want to talk about at the moment. But yeah. I do want to mention one other thing, which might be good news or it might be bad news. Okay, tell me. And it's film related. Well, it's book related. All right. I, I don't know how you're going to take this. So I'm just doing this live. So, you know that we both love The Memory Police by Yoko Ogawa. They're making it into a film. Charlie Kaufman is turning it into a film. And Lily Gladstone, who just won the Oscar for Killers of the Flower Moon, is going to play the editor, not the editor, the lead female role in it. And Martin Scorsese is going to be producing. I I, I want a live reaction. (laughs) 
with words. I don't think they should bother. Okay. It's hard to find words. They're doing I just, it. I have, well, maybe they won't now when they hear what I have to say. Yeah, true. I mean, I hold weight, we all know. I mean, this podcast is just snowballing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. We've done that. <laughs> so many listeners. <laughs> I just, I have a real visceral reaction when they turn books that I like into films. I know, and I feel like I'm baiting you, but yeah. it's one of our favourite novels, so I just I feel like you want to hear it from someone who cares I don't, about you. I don't think it matters how many Oscars people have got or, or how well they're regarded in the film world. I think films always shit all over the original book. Like, it's just not possible to turn, I don't think. But then Can maybe... you just repeat that last bit? Because I'm just, I'm just drafting an email to Scorsese now. Did you say yeah. shitting all over the book? Yes. Do you? Okay. <laughs> Verbatim, right. I'd like yeah. that, please. No, I put it in speech marks. Yeah. In um, a coloured font. And lots of exclamation yep. marks. Why yep. don't you use Comic Sans? And just... Well, I've done a crying face emoticon. <laughs> yeah, that really... I'm one of those turds with eyes. Anyway, <laughs> I just thought you'd want to know. Yeah, I probably won't watch it. I, I really love that book. I think the book's beautiful and I think it might just anger me. I just like when things are... Left alone. Yeah. Why do films have to be, like, based on a book? Why can't people just write a script for the film? They do that sometimes, right? I'm looking at you both in case I've got this yeah, wrong. Yeah, no, but they, they absolutely do. It is do. possible to write a script that was not... Yes, I'm getting nods. So it's, why? It, why do they have to take the good things? I feel like you're a bit of a hypocrite because a couple of episodes back, you said you like the idea of being a novelist but just copying books Oh, yeah, I did, because that made my laugh, life easier. Well, from a different character's perspective. Stop laughing, James. <laughs> <laughs> from a different... From a different character's perspective, so that's different. Anyway. Because this film isn't from another perspective. They're it's, not it's doing n- anything different. I can see this is upsetting us both. I think both. we should, I think we this should move This is backfired. <laughs> I thought this was going to be a light-hearted conversation. Not. It's ruined everything. What have you been reading? So, I read The Society of the Snow by Pablo Villasi. Oh, is this the one that's like the film Alive? Yes. Okay, Um, tell me about it. So it was published by Hatchet in, I think, in December 2023. And it's kind of pitched as the world's greatest survival story. So uh, it was released alongside the Netflix documentary of the same name. Now, this book, as you've kind of just hinted to, is actually the second book and second film of the same topic. Uh So the first was Alive which was a book and then a film. And actually the book Alive is one that Nicholas, this will probably come up a lot, but essentially what always happens is my other half recommends books to me and I ignore him. Yeah. <laughs> he says, I think you'll really like this. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. And then we watched the Netflix documentary and Nick was like, the book Alive is based on this same story that I've been telling you. And I went, oh, that sounds amazing. But I couldn't find a... <laughs> like you were just hearing it for the first time. Yeah. Did you just deny that he'd ever told you? I mean, you that's, that's my usual play. I mean, this is like... my level of gaslighting in my relationship, but I'm glad that you're replicating it. I'm just like, did you? I don't remember. I couldn't find a live. I don't think it's still being printed, but you probably could stumble across it in charity shops or mm. secondhand bookshops. I did try a couple and I couldn't find it. So I ordered Society of the Snow. So anyway, for anyone who doesn't have any idea what I'm talking about, I'm going to give you the synopsis. Yes. It was the 13th of October, 1972. Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571, carrying a team of young rugby players, their families and friends, took off for the very last time. A deadly miscalculation saw F571 crash directly into the Andean mountains, to devastating consequences. The body of the plane broke violently into two. Its floor torn to smithereens. Seats flew out of the air, taking passengers with them. In the weeks that followed, the remaining people who were on board, the Society of the Snow, emerged to fight a dire, gruelling battle for survival. 
Waiting for a rescue team that didn't arrive, the survivors became fewer and fewer in number. Stranded alone on a glacier, they had to face brutal temperatures, lethal avalanches and the loss of friends and family, with no access to supplies, food or water. In order to survive, they had to do the unthinkable. It wasn't until 72 days later that they were able to reach safety. Wow. Yeah. And essentially the journalist Pablo, who, who writes, writes this book, recounts the unsettling stories of the 16 survivors in kind of intimate detail, speaking to them, recounting their stories and, and looking at everything that happened. I think it's such an incredible book. I mean, I do have a bit of an obsession with plane crashes. There's a programme, cannot for the life of me remember what it's called. Oh, yes, I can. Plane crash investigation. <laughs> I thought you would say plane crash dash cam. Sorry, that's it's, really inappropriate. But... It's, 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 a, it's just about plane crashes. Sorry, yeah. you watch a programme just about plane crashes? Yeah, it just looks at But you watch other TV, crashes. yeah? Yeah, but I, okay. I really... I think it's on Discovery or something, one of the random right. channels. It's along the lines of similar vein to kind of the programmes where they go through people's luggage when they're flying. Oh, see, I like those. They're yeah. quite light-hearted. Okay, this Even isn't... Even the criminals. Yeah, I mean, this isn't really light-hearted, but I don't know, I just find No, it, I'd guess that. I find, <laughs> I find it fascinating. I mean, I have to go back off holiday and it does make flights very uncomfortable <laughs> whilst I think about all the ways that the planes have gone wrong in the past. Anyway, so I really like, find these kind of things fascinating. But the interesting thing about Society of the Snow is I think whilst the book, the documentary and ultimately the true story that this is based on have been very sensationalised, essentially because of the fact that the survivors did have to eat their friends and family to survive because they had no food mm. for 72 days that's kind of a, what a lot of news focuses on. And when people talk about it, they focus on that. But I actually found the book very moving and very inspiring because there's a lot of talk around their mindset and how they managed to deal with being stuck in such a horrendous situation and to make it through and to, to keep pushing on and not just give up. They managed to stay together. None of them turned against each other and they kind of supported each other. So whilst some really horrible things happened, my takeaway from the book was much more, was much more happy. Sounds like a huge test of their mental and physical endurance. Yeah. And the fact that they survived is kind of testament to the community that they had. Yeah. And, and their ability to work together. It's insane because so they managed to recover the radio from the front half of the plane, but they could only receive on it. And they actually heard on the radio that they had given up the search. Wow. And imagine like what that must do to your mindset to actually know that nobody's looking for you. Mm just yeah mind-boggling really when you think about what they went through but they went through it and they came out the other side and i do really recommend it okay i might give this a go so we've talked about things let's just dive into our author spotlight for our very first author spotlight we have chosen the wonderful american novelist rebecca Mackay, who some of you might know from her award-winning best-selling novel the great believers which i've actually hyped up on this podcast before so it came out in 2018 and we're going to talk more about that particular book in a little while but before we do joseph can you tell us about rebecca please i can shall we start with her name which is the self-appointed pronunciation police on the pod i think we've been pronouncing correctly yes that might be a first well the americanized version of her name at least it's like the band mcfly but without the f and the l kai kai, kai. <laughs> that's the weirdest explanation but okay that's the explanation that she gives on her website. Oh, sorry, Rebecca. Uh, sorry, Rebecca. 
Anyway, I mention her name because interestingly, and I didn't know this before doing some extra reading ahead of our chat today, but her surname is actually Hungarian in origin. So her parents were linguistic professors who fled Hungary during the Hungarian Revolution in 1956 Mm -hmm. due to their political beliefs and settled in the States where Rebecca grew up. And if that wasn't exciting enough, her grandmother, Rosas Ignash, was also a well-known actress and novelist in Hungary. Oh, cool. So she's got like... A very She's literary background. Very. I was going to say, so given that Rebecca was surrounded by language and books from a very early age, it's not surprising that she ended up becoming a novelist. No, I've that, but that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? She was born in 1978 in Lake Bluff, Illinois, which I believe is about 40 miles from Chicago, if you need to orient yourself on the map. Really bad at geography, but thank you. She studied English literature at university and later went on to earn a master's from the Breadloaf School of English, which is apparently the most prestigious writers' conference and MFA programme in the States. It's got a great name. It has a fantastic name. Hmm, I like it. And they do an undergraduate degree at the Baguette School. <laughs> after, leaving, <laughs> after leaving Breadloaf, she was an elementary Montessori teacher for 12 years before the publication of her first novel, The Borrower, in 2011. She published her second novel, The Hundred Year House, a few years later in 2014, and this went on to win the 2015 Novel of the Year Award from the Chicago Writers Association and also garnered rave reviews in the New York Times and elsewhere. So already doing very well by that point. However, and I think we knew this was coming, it Mm. was in 2018 that Mackay's star really started to rise with the publication of her third novel, which you just mentioned, The Great Believers, a novel set in Chicago at the height of the American AIDS epidemic, as well as in 2015 Paris. And I think this is the book most people know her for. Am I right in saying that? Do you think? I think so, yes. Listeners, tell us. Am I right? Am I wrong? Anyway, The Great Believers was shortlisted for the 2019 Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award and ended up winning so many big awards, including, and I've got a long list here, but I'm just going to pick a few, the Andrew Carnegie Medal, the LA Times Book Prize, the Stonewall Award, the Chicago Tribune Heartland Prize, the Midwest Independent Booksellers Award, the Clark Fiction Prize. I'm going to give up now. I mean, yeah, there's loads of loads of awards. It's a hugely well-respected novel. Writing in the New York Times book review, Michael Cunningham, who's just released Day, his new ah, novel. Yes. Yeah, he called the novel a page-turner, an absorbing and emotionally riveting story about what it's like to live during times of crisis. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And finally, she lives on the campus of the Midwestern Boarding School where her husband teaches, and she has a house in Vermont. And that little detail about her life might seem more relevant when we get round to discussing her latest novel. I mean, that was a very good biographical roundup. So thank you, Joseph. You're Nicely welcome. Nicely done. Yeah, and she's clearly packed quite a lot into a short space of time and been rewarded for it. So I first heard of Rebecca Mackay when I was hunting the internet. I mean, as I often do. I think I probably searched for something like Best Books of 2019. I'm not really sure, yeah, sure what caught me about this book because the actual cover is quite plain. It is. I think it was probably the Pulitzer Prize little sticker thing. But as soon as I read the synopsis, I was hooked and it sounded gritty and emotional, which is so up my street. But prior to coming across that, I had never heard of Rebecca Mackay. Mm. Um, But Joseph, I know you came across her quite a bit earlier than I did, right? Yes, I came across her when The Hundred Year House was published. And what year was that again? That was in 2016. Okay, and how did you come across her? 
Okay, this might sound a bit random, but I first came across her work when one of my friends tried to start a new art school in the UK, which is a bit wacky. Yeah. Anyway, a big inspiration for this art school project was a very famous artist community called Yaddo. Have you heard of this one? No. Like a name like Bread Loaf, almost as good. So Yaddo is based in upstate New York and it was set up in the mid-1920s. It's one of those places that's had some incredibly famous alumni, including writers like James Baldwin and your favourite Jonathan Franzen, and Sylvia Plath, actually. So big, big names. Mm. And anyway, I said I would do some research for my friend. And as part of that research, I looked at archive material like diaries and letters, but I also wanted to explore kind of like fictional representations of artist communities as well, and Yaddo in particular, if possible. And so I stumbled across Rebecca Mackay's second novel, The Hundred Year House, which is about an artist colony throughout the ages, and was, I learned, heavily influenced by her time at Yaddo. This is such a good story. I know you'd written a little note in our like pre-show note. I purposely didn't read it because I wanted that first experience of hearing you tell me a great story. The emotional was... thrill. Did yeah, it land? It did. That's such yeah. a good story. Well, anyway, I was completely hooked once I'd read The Hundred Year House. And I mean, I'm sorry to say my friend's crazy art school idea never took off, but... I did go on to read all of Rebecca's work at the time and become a complete stan. So some good did come of it. Yeah. Should we talk about what we like in terms of her novels? Yes. Why Why Rebecca Mackay? I'm going to ask you because I know you really pushed, you are a big fan and you really pushed for her to be our first author that we spotlighted. So so why? What is so great about Rebecca Mackay, please? I mean, I feel like there's loads of authors we could have chosen for our mm-hmm. first spotlight. We were talking about Otessa Moshfeg, we were talking about mm. Lauren Groth, we were talking about lots of other really mega famous writers. Yeah. American, in translation, English. But I really push for Rebecca Mackay. And in terms of what I like about her novels, just briefly, I would have to say that she does a couple of things that keep me coming back to her for more. Mm-hmm. So she writes really good complex characters. And I know that's sort of a, a review buzzword nowadays. We've complained about it. Everyone's characters are supposedly complex which I think often just translates to them being really awful human beings. Or even just them being human beings. Or just human beings. Well, that's what I was going to say. But Mackay's characters are genuinely human in that sense. You know, they worry about ageing. They have relatable problems with their families and their partners. They have eating disorders, issues with sex and intimacy. The whole bag, it's all there. They are believable. But they're kind of flawed 3D creations you can invest in. I would agree, having now read most of her backlist, that she does have a real way with characters there are some books you read and the characters don't really stay with you and often you you don't feel like they're really fleshed out yeah and even her minor characters there's no silhouettes or ciphers in Rebecca Mackay yeah everyone is a living breathing character even if they're in it for a paragraph Mm -hmm. which I really appreciate and I was just going to say linked to that the second plus the second big plus for me is that Mackay writes strong LGBT characters who if they're not always necessarily happy because of the time that they live in or because of their own particular circumstances, they're nevertheless definitely in control of their lives. Mm-hmm. I, can't, I don't know about you, but too often I read novels by non-LGBT writers and LGBT writers, actually, that seem to punish their queer characters. And I'm not always saying that's a conscious choice, 
But as an LGBT reader myself, I do notice a lot of queer characters being either killed off prematurely or being portrayed as victims or just generally being miserable for the entire book. Yeah, I think it's kind of linked or that they're not, like we've just said what Mackay's so good at, they're not fleshed out. They are there to represent the queer community as a whole yeah. and to kind of tick a box. And, and they've, they've got queer trauma and they either need to yes. die or just disappear. Yeah, like, oh, they're queer and life's really tough. Like, And that's not... It is for lots of queer people, but it's not for like all of us. Like <laughs> we can be happy and have great lives too. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it is really nice that it's just one aspect of their personality or that their identity is probably a better word. Yeah, absolutely. Murkai has gone on record as a straight ally and said, I want to write queer characters that reflect the people who are around me, that are in my family, the people I love. So I think that's, that's just fantastic. Mm. And lastly, I would say I love how immersive her novels are and how even though she clearly does a lot of research into the time periods and places she's writing about, her research is never heavy on the page. So she can take you into the heart of the art world in 80 Chicago or behind the scenes at a high-profile trial and you really are there, but you never feel she's trying too hard to convince you of that. Essentially, she's just a really good writer. She's thoughtful, she's talented, and, and that really translates to what lands on the page. Okay, let's, let's actually discuss some of her novels. Yeah. Shall we start with the debut, The Borrower? Yeah, let's. Okay, so The Borrower was originally published in 2012 and was a booklist top 10 debut, an indie next pit, and an O Magazine selection. So even straight off the bat with her debut, she was getting attention. I'm going to read you the synopsis because I think this is the best way to give you an insight into this book. Remind me. I was actually talking to the listeners, but sure, I'll remind you. (laughs) Lucy Hull, a young children's librarian in Hannibal, Missouri, finds herself both kidnapper and kidnapped when her favourite patron, 10-year-old Ian Drake, runs away from home. The precocious Ian is addicted to reading, but needs Lucy's help to smuggle books past his overbearing mother, who has enrolled Ian in weekly anti-gay classes. Lucy, a rebel at heart beneath her librarian's exterior, stumbles into a moral dilemma when she finds Ian camped out in the library after hours with a knapsack of provisions and an escape plan. Desperate to save him from the Drakes, Lucy allows herself to be hijacked by Ian. The odd pair embarks on an improvised road trip from Missouri to Vermont with ferrets and an inconvenient boyfriend thrown in their path. Along the way, Lucy struggles to make peace with her Russian immigrant father and his fugitive past and is forced to use his shady connections to escape discovery. Oh, I have so many feels about this novel. So, I mean, just straight off the bat, like, what did you think of The Borrower? Just mad. I don't know how this book exists, but it does. And it seems to get everything right. And I know there are a lot of people out there who criticise the potentially convolutedness of the plot, but I didn't think it was like that. It was just really fun. Yeah, I just really enjoyed it. Spoiler, this was my favourite of all of her books. Okay. By far. I just thought this was so off the wall and because we talked about like what books might this be classed as similar to and Mm. i i spent weeks trying to think of a book that might sit alongside this book it feels very much in a kind of world of its own i loved it it's obviously around books and librarians and road trips and i just was so on board with all of it often librarian characters are seen as quite meek and quiet and perhaps shy or maybe a bit boring and that is not the case with this character and I don't think that's the case with most librarians either it's just how they're often we're a ferocious breed yes and the book's funny despite the fact that the synopsis tells us it's all about a kidnapping it's really really fun 
It is. No, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned the the relationship between Lucy and Ian. I love that. It's kind of like an odd couple relationship. Mm. All of their witty repartee and Ian's sassy responses. I thought there was a completely believable bond between them. Yes. And I don't know about you, but I thought Ian was clearly an old soul in a child's body. And I massively identify with that. Yeah, me too. That was me as a child. And I loved how his quick thinking helped them out of like a number of scrapes. He was always ready to role play and do semi-illegal things. Saying that, the one thing throughout the book, and I think this is, you know, I'm quite an anxious being, so I think it was me, but Lucy doesn't ever seem that bothered about the fact that she's, I mean, she kind of does. It's there a little bit. There's that underlying tension. She knows that perhaps crossing state lines with a, a minor that is, is not meant to be in her care and who is probably classed as missing is bad but I just thought if this was me I'd be losing my mind I'd be like oh my god I'm going to prison like my life is over like I don't know what to do whereas she's kind of just very like las fair like let's just roll with it Let's she's in her twenties. She's there's, she's having a career in past. Well, yeah, and I am she's in my thirties now. So. She's, well, exactly. So you're a lot more mature. You think about things like this. I have to say, Ian consented to being abducted. Yes, but can children really consent? They can't, and I'm I'm on very thin ice here. Just on that point, though, because mm. we talked about the book getting quite a lot of criticism. People said, "Oh, this is just unbelievable." I just think this book can't be viewed through a hyper realistic lens. I think it makes much more sense if you treat it as a kind of road trip novel. Yes, in the same way we approach fantasy and we're like, well, that could never happen. Yeah. That's not, it's not meant to. It's a fantasy book, right? And I'm not saying that this is fantasy, but I think we should approach it in the same way. That's not what this story is about. It's not about whether or not you think this could actually happen. Although when you're reading it, it feels very believable. Yeah. But it's, but yeah. Lucy and Ian are having a holiday from their regular lives. And I think you've, you've got to take the book at its word. It's suspending normal operations, normal life for a little while, isn't yes. it? And then they're yeah. going on this trip. And I think the great thing about road novels is it gives the characters a chance to try out new facets of their personalities and be tested. It's a really exciting adventure for both of them. Yeah, and I really did just view this book as like an adventure book and tried to not come at it from a critical angle to the point I actually, I genuinely don't think I've got any criticism of this book. I loved it. I really loved it. And we've mentioned Mackay's ability to draw really convincing minor characters before. Mm. Something I really loved about this book was that there was a team of about 10 minor characters like Lucy's alcoholic boss. Yes. Rocky, her colleague, who she had an on and off romance with, maybe. Yes, and realised, well, didn't, yeah. The loser boyfriend who just turns up and they try to get rid of. Yeah, I really enjoyed everybody that kind of come in, her family, like her dad and her mum. Oh, the dad was brilliant. Yeah, Yeah. amazing. His dad friends with the ferret every character we came across in this book i found really interesting and i I, yeah i would really recommend this book and i'd really recommend reading this if you're a librarian because i feel like this book was a love letter to librarians it was um, but would you recommend to non-librarians can everyone read it no i don't think non-librarians should <laughs> be reading books no i think that's inappropriate but as a debut i thought it was absolutely fantastic it was a did, really strong starting point did you have any criticisms or anything to raise on the topic of criticisms i personally don't have any criticisms it did make me laugh looking at goodreads reviews that quite a few people had no issue with lucy abducting in for a week but they couldn't believe that lucy could have got a library job without a master's in library sciences <laughs> but then i don't know is that that's just goodreads logic isn't it yeah just <laughs> that just made me chuckle i just thought get your priorities right they're like, yeah, she's they're a criminal like... she's a criminal they're like no but she's underqualified <laughs> i found that hilarious <laughs> i mean yeah fine i'm not i don't say too much but it really made me laugh personally is there so is there any books that you 
would say this is similar to. Did you manage to find anything that you would kind of... Okay, not a book, but this story reminds me of a film by Vin Vendors called Alice in the Cities. Ooh, I've not, I've not heard of that. Yeah, it's a black and white film from the 70s. That's why I've not heard of it. Why well, you've not heard of it. And it, it's about a writer who ends up travelling across Germany in a car with a girl whose mother he's just met and she's basically abandoned her daughter and he looks after her and it has the same road movie vibes. I kind of want to know how the Ian story continues. Yes, and do you know what? So obviously we were doing research for this and I did find on Rebecca's website that she had like a bit of an FAQ page about The Borrowers. Oh my God, what? And she said, so she said she wouldn't do a sequel to The Borrowers. She doesn't really want to do a sequel to anything. But... She said that her readers will be seeing Ian Drake again in the future oh. and that she has a plan. Oh. Yeah, which I thought was really exciting. That's really exciting. So I don't know whether she's going to like bring him back in another story, perhaps, like a totally brand new story, but might feature Ian Drake might just pop up somewhere. Mm, as president. Maybe. Ian Drake for president. But I thought that was pretty cool. Um, should we talk about her next book? Yes, her second book. This is The Hundred Year House, which was published in 2016 and which was chosen as the Chicago Writers Association Novel of the Year. The Los Angeles Times also called it a big-hearted gothic novel, an intergenerational mystery, a story of heartbreak and a romance all crammed into one grand Midwestern estate. There's a lot there. Yeah, it's got a bit of everything, really, hasn't it? It has. Shall I read us a synopsis? Yes, please. So, when Doug's mother-in-law offers up the coach house at Laurelfield, her hundred-year-old estate north of Chicago, Doug and his wife Z accept. Doug is fascinated by the house's previous life as an artist colony and hopes to find something archival there about the poet Edwin Parfit, who was in residence at Laurelfield in the 20s and whose work happens to be Doug's area of scholarship. When he learns that there are file cabinets full of colony material in the attic, Doug is anxious to get to work and save his career but his mother-in-law refuses him access. With help from his friends, Doug finally does access the Parfit file, only to find far stranger and more disturbing material than he bargained for. Doug may never learn all the house's secrets. But the reader does. As the narrative zips back in time from 1999 to 1955 and to 1929, we see the autumn right after the colony's demise, when its newlywed owners are more at the mercy of the place's lingering staff than they could imagine. And we see it as a bustling artist community fighting for survival in the last heady days of the 1920s. Through it all, the residents of Laurelfield are both plagued and blessed by the strange legacy of Laurelfield's original owners. Extraordinary luck, whether good or bad. It's a long synopsis, isn't it? <sighs> Gosh. <laughs> I didn't realise quite until you read it quite how uh, chunky but, it is. But I feel it's the structure of the book is so complex mm. that... It needed that synopsis. You Where, would be missing so much out. Or yes. could, could you do it in three lines? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Where does this land for you in, in the Mackay universe? I'm really intrigued about where The Hundred Year House fell for you. In terms of how much I liked it compared to the other novels? Yeah. Or what yeah. I thought of it generally in terms of her style and what she normally does? Both, really. Having read the four I novels? I kind of want to know both of those things. I kind of felt like we got three novels for the price of one with this one. Mm-hmm. Mm, I wouldn't say it's my favourite novel, but I really like the artist colony section, the mid middle section. Mm. There were parts of the book that I didn't like as much. How about you? I didn't, I didn't love this one so much. I really wanted to. I really liked the first third of the story. Mm -hmm. I lost interest the more the further back in time we went. The more I was thinking. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. I I don't know if that's just a me thing. 
I don't know if it's just this was the last book that I read of Rebecca's, so I don't know if it was just that Mackay fatigue. Yeah, Mackay fatigue, or just that I loved her other books so much more because there was, she's done some incredible things. Yeah, I don't know, but this fell a bit flat in comparison for me. I love the depiction of the artist colony in the 1920s. I loved all the, you know, the bohemian atmosphere, the love intrigues and infighting amongst the artists. And this was originally the bit of the story that drew me in. But as much as the other sections weren't as good, I did find them equally enjoyable. The first section with Doug, trying to gain access to the attic archive and Mm -hmm. Edwin Parfitt's missing works, and what he eventually finds out, felt like a a well-put-together mystery. And it was also funny. You know, he has like that side gig where he's writing Babysitter Club novels. Yeah, yeah. He's like a failed... Yes, I think, yeah. Scholar. I I did laugh at this, and I, I, I found that quite interesting. I do think ultimately with this book, if we weren't doing this, I probably wouldn't have finished it. Okay, well, that's fair. What did you think of the second section with Grace and her husband... Because I felt like that kind of changed gear completely and had really strong Daphne du Maurier vibes. Like I was really feeling Rebecca with all of these kind of like hidden identities. There was like a supernatural element, women being locked away. I thought it was clever. I thought the whole book was was clever, the way that that these stories are intertwined and how she she manages to still make it feel cohesive, even though they are wildly different times, different characters, there's different things happening somehow. She manages to tie all of that together so you don't feel lost. Yeah, that's definitely one of the strongest points of the book for me was her ability to jump from contemporary family drama to historical fiction to literary fiction and for us not to be jarred by those yes. transitions as readers, which yeah. is, I, I can imagine, really difficult to do. Yeah, I think that takes takes some, some well, doing, I would imagine. We've never done it, Rebecca, so... Yeah, I mean... We've Kudos. read nothing, so... <laughs> And it's a difficult one to talk about, isn't it? Because as soon as you start to talk about the plot in any kind of depth, you're giving away spoilers. Yes. Yeah. Look, I mean... Were you not... su- but were you surprised by the reveals in this? The... Yes. Yes. I didn't see any of it coming. Me neither. Um, it wasn't like a plot that I was able to predict. And that was nice to know that the story was going to unravel before me and, and think, I wonder what's going to happen. And I was kind of like, I don't... W- yeah. What could be around the corner? We never know with a Mackay novel. And I like that about it. But yeah. So if we had one minor criticism, yours would be, I never wanted to read this book in the first place. Just no, and and this feels really harsh. I feel like I'm being really harsh about this book because I still would say to people, read it. I just really loved the others and I didn't have any of that kind of connection with this book. Whereas all of the other three that we're going to talk about slash have talked about, I loved and am really passionate about. This one, I just was a bit more, it's a good book. Yep. I think I enjoyed it more. And as I've said, it felt like we were getting three novels for the price of one. I wanted more Doug and Z the first longer yes, section, the contemporary yeah. family drama mm-hmm. with the element of history. Yes. Okay. Should we talk about her third novel, The Great Believers? Yes. Okay. So it's a novel set in Chicago. It's at the height of the American AIDS epidemic, as well as in 2015 Paris. It was a finalist for the 2019 Pulitzer Prize, which is what drew me in. But it was also won the 2018 National Book Award. Uh, it was one of the New York Times top 10 books of 2018. It also won the, the LA Times Book Prize. I mean, again, we could go on and on and on. Just a huge list of yeah, prizes. Yeah, a massive list of prizes. Where does she put all of these prizes? I, I hope know, she's she, got a big mantelpiece. Does she get a, do you get an actual award for them? Oh, maybe not, no. Yeah, essentially, people loved this book, and for good reason. So I'm going to give you the synopsis. In 1985, Yale Tishman, the development director for an art gallery in Chicago, is about to pull off an amazing coup bringing in an extraordinary collection of 1920s paintings as a gift to the gallery. Yet as his career begins to flourish, the carnage of the AIDS epidemic grows around him. 
One by one, his friends are dying, and after his friend's Nico's funeral, he finds his partner is infected, and they might even have the virus himself. The only person he has left is Fiona, Nico's little sister. 30 years later, Fiona is in Paris tracking down her estranged daughter who disappeared into a cult. While staying with an old friend, a famous photographer who documented the Chicago epidemic, she finds herself finally grappling with the devastating ways the AIDS crisis affected her life and her relationship with her daughter. Yale and Fiona's stories unfold in incredibly moving and sometimes surprising ways, as both struggle to find goodness in the face of disaster. Wow. Wow. I mean, what were your initial summaries of, of the book, of, of your thoughts of it? I was just completely emotionally obliterated by this book. Mm-hmm. Previous to this, the only AIDS literature that I read that I would rate was To the Friend That Didn't Save My Life by Hervé Giba. Are you familiar with this one, the French author? Yes, but I've not read it. Yeah, again, set in 70s, 80s, Paris, someone going through the AIDS epidemic. And I just thought this was on a par, if not better. I mean, I loved the the dual narrative structure of this book. I thought Fiona going to Paris and looking back on her life and kind of processing her survivor's guilt and her trauma while she's looking for her daughter. I thought that was a really powerful way of framing Mm. the stories back in the 80s about these young men who were dying from AIDS. Well, that's interesting because I was going to ask you because I I definitely favoured the 80s section of the book. Mm. I did enjoy the second half. I enjoyed the entire book and I was really immersed in it. But I just, I didn't feel as captured by current day, well, it's 2015 Paris. And I was intrigued with your kind of literary mind that's much better <laughs> pulling out themes and, and ways things are framed. I, w- I was really interested to feel whether you felt like that was necessary to make the book what it was. I feel like the Paris section did a few things. It gave us a glimpse into Fiona's mind and we were able to see things from her perspective. She'd been kind of lurking in the background throughout the whole novel and the section in Paris was a chance for us to read her as a main character, Mm -hmm. which I thought was important. I found the whole story about her trying to locate her daughter really moving in itself. Did you like that plot point? Yes, yeah, and I definitely, I found the whole book emotional. There is so much emotion throughout these pages in, in various aspects. As you say, you've got that mother-daughter dynamic, you've got the the relationship between friends, the relationship between lovers, the people who don't survive. Like, there is so much going on there. Even the emotion of, we've got, like, our elderly character donating her artworks. Yeah. I even felt emotion in, in that and, and in the family dynamic she was a part of. Yeah, absolutely. And also, just thinking about Fiona, and I'm sure I've heard Mackay talk about this somewhere, she didn't want to centre a straight woman character as the main narrator in the story. So giving her those sections meant that when we're back in the 1980s, we just hear the voices of Yale and his friends talking about their experiences. It could have been interesting if perhaps Fiona's character wasn't straight, but then perhaps is that more complex to write with the daughter... It might have muddied the waters mm. with the, the AIDS storyline. Yeah. Being mainly a cultural point that affected gay men. Just as you were speaking, I'm thinking, why do we even need a straight woman? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, the yeah. Part, a part of my brain was like, do we even... Well, I, I guess you could say, why didn't she write it all in the first person and just have Yale speak for himself? But then that's kind of like, it's tipping into maybe appropriation. Like, it's not yes. her experience to talk about. Yeah, that's true. And and to be fair, this sounds like I'm criticising it. I didn't really have any criticisms of the book. I, I really enjoyed it. It's a book that 
I just got lost in, as we've said, character development. That was ace again, as always. And I really felt like I was right there with all the characters. Yeah. It really felt like I was a part of that world for a little bit. I felt like I was really getting a glimpse into what living through that period as a, as a gay man or a friend might be like. Yeah. And it wasn't just it wasn't just an AIDS chronicle. I felt like we got to see into the cultural and political life of Chicago yes. as well. Yeah. And I, I was so relieved it was set in Chicago and not New York. And I thought that was really interesting. You know, Yale's life and his career in the Chicago art world in particular was really richly drawn. Yeah. And there was so much, so much within these pages, as you say, it really wasn't just people catching AIDS or being afraid of catching AIDS. There was a lot more to the storyline. Yale's career is a huge part of this. The friendships and just how these men and some women are friends and how those friendships work and the dynamics and, and the things that happen to them. It, yeah, there was it was really rich. I should say there are some incredible women in this novel. It's there not are. it's not just Fiona remembering what had happened. Do you remember Cecily Pierce? Yes. Who starts by having kind of like a frenemy relationship with Yale she's mm -hmm. one of his colleagues and she tries to undercut him on a deal and she ends up becoming an incredible friend her character arc is just chef's kiss yeah I mean I think the whole book is chef's kiss I think it's brilliant I can't think of any other books like this no the only things I could think of are things like Chuggy Bane which I'm actually oh. finally reading at the moment yeah. okay does that make sense yeah yeah totally um it did give me feels of the Matthew McConaughey film set in the AIDS crisis the one with Jared Leto? Yes. The Dallas Buyers Club? Yeah, that's yes. the one. Which was different as it's a film, but an incredible kind of portrait of that time. And that's not in New York either. That's Is that Midwest? Well, it's Dallas. Oh, yeah. Dallas, Texas. <laughs> Clues in the title. <laughs> I, I've mentioned Hervé Gibert's uh, To the Friend Who Could Not Save My Life. Yes. I just remembered another book, The Farewell Symphony by Edmund White, which was published in the late 90s, and that's about the AIDS crisis. Okay. Although it goes back to a period before the AIDS crisis in the 60s. It's more of a memoir, though, but definitely worth checking yeah, out. Yeah, 100%. Okay, that sounds really cool. Shall we talk about our last book of the day? Yes, I have some questions for you. So... Ask away. <laughs> this was just published this year. Yes. Yes. Oh, no, was it published last year? But we couldn't get well, it until this year. Oh, let's not go into that. Yeah. Published recently. Yeah. And we've read it. Okay, I'm going to give you a synopsis. Yes, please. A successful film professor and broadcaster, Bodie Kane, is content to forget her past, the family tragedy that marred her adolescence, her four largely miserable years at a New Hampshire boarding school, and the 1995 murder of a classmate, Talia Keith. Though the circumstances surrounding Talia's death and the conviction of the school's athletic trainer, Omar Evans, are the subject of intense fascination online, Bodie prefers, needs, to let sleeping dogs lie. But when the Granby School invites her back to teach a two-week course, Bodhi finds herself inexorably drawn to the case and the increasingly apparent flaws. In their rush to convict Omar, did the school and the police overlook other suspects? Is the real killer still out there? As she falls down the very rabbit hole she was so determined to avoid, Bodhi begins to wonder if she wasn't as much of an outsider at Granby as she'd thought, if, perhaps, back in 1995 she knew something that might have held the key to solving the case. I feel like that's the the intro to a really good true crime podcast. Yes, it does It does feel like that. The book is very reminiscent of, of, of a true crime, even though it's fiction. Yeah. I was just going to say, we, we did talk about this book when we were talking about our, our picks for 2024. And I have to say, I was really excited to read this and I absolutely loved it. It was the perfect blend of, as we've said, true crime and a campus novel. Yeah. I thought Bodhi as a lead character was very flawed, 
but very relatable. She's at an impasse with her career. She's consciously decoupled, using the Gwyneth Paltrow term, from her husband, Goop. But she's funny. She's worried about her weight and whether she'll ever find uh, another romantic partner. She's kind of got a, um, what do you call it, a booty call in this Mm -hmm. novel. that kind of Works out, doesn't work out, friend with a benefit. Friend with benefits? Friend with a benefit. A singular benefit. Um, (laughs) But I should say, she's also, I, I just thought she was a great character. She was a great mentor to the students. Mm-hmm. and she has like a deep-scented, deep-scented, thinking of Gwyneth Paltrow and her candles. She has like vagina. a... Vagina. Okay. She's got a vagina candle, right? Has she? I think so. Oh, right, okay. Yes, James... Oh, James nodding, you know about that candle? So it's got a, one at home. It's called grey mucus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I just thought she was a, she was a really likeable character. You know, she's driven throughout the whole novel to find justice for, for Talia. Mm-hmm. She's, she's on a mission. Yeah. What did you think of Bodhi? Liked her. Enjoyed the whole book. In the Mackay world, I've got the borrower, the great, the borrowers, the great believer. I think it's just the borrower. Oh, the borrower. The borrowers is a different book. Oh yeah, two that's for, the little two, people. Two for the price of one. Bog off. <laughs> oh, we've been here. You can always tell when the, when the episodes. <laughs> Okay, right. Reaches a certain point. Okay, so I think the borrower, the great believers, then this one. I have some questions for you. Yeah. And then the hundred year house. So it's one from last for me. Oh, really? Mm. So I'm the great believers. I have some questions for you. The hundred year house and then the borrower. Oh, we're like opposite. So, but I kind of feel like the hundred year house and the borrower is equal third, third place for me. Do you think? Oh, yeah. nice. No, no, oh, this is intriguing. I listen to a lot of true crime. Like I, I love true crime podcasts. Yeah, I know you're a I read fan. quite a lot of true crime books. Although I must say, I feel funny about using the term fan because we're talking about awful things that happen to people. So I quite like podcasts that are really responsible in how they tell these stories and that are trying to do good with, yeah. with it as opposed to just bringing up awful things that have happened to talk about the really horrific elements I get that. of it. You're not a bad um, person. <laughs> Thanks. So I don't know if that's why I didn't love this one as much. I really like, I did really like it and I give it a good four and a half stars. Thought it was really well written. I liked all the characters. I was immersed. I don't know if it's just because I've already got quite a lot of true crime in my life, whether perhaps it feels a little overdone for me. But then I think if you were just a person who didn't listen to all these podcasts, you would walk away like, wow, this is inventive. This is clever. This is... All these things. Okay, so you're coming with it with that idea of what, what true crime yes. looks like in your head. For me, I got more of a only murders in the building vibe. It's more kind of semi-comic in a way. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I love the way that she joined up with two of her most kind of precocious students and formed this weird little non-binary LGBTQ plus Scooby-Doo gang to investigate yes. the murder. Yeah. I thought that was very clever. And that was one of my favourite parts of the novel, I thought the references to Me Too as well were mm-hmm. quite profound. Yeah, it was really cleverly woven in as well to be a, a really strong part of the story without feeling like it kind of been shoehorned in there or anything. Yeah, you know? it, it was really sensitively done. And mm-hmm. I think she's Mackay's really good at picking a political theme or an important political point and making it part of her novel without, you know, you feeling like you're being lectured. Yeah. Do you remember that brilliantly deadpan joke running through the whole novel where every time Bodhi talks to a male character, the first thing they ask her is, who's looking after your children? Yes. I thought that was genius. And I just thought it was a very witty and pointed piece of commentary on the kind of chronic sexism women face, especially in the media. Yes. I really enjoyed it. And it ticked a lot of boxes for me. It was fast paced. I like the true crime element and it's in second place for me. 
so we've we've ended up quite different and I think I mean overall where I I I finish up is Rebecca Mackay is is a genius and she is very talented and you should all go and read her books and I guess I don't really mind which of her books you read I just implore everyone to pick the one that sounds the most like them to start with and then and then go from there I completely agree and I'm really glad we've done this episode because she has won all these awards but I don't think she gets the attention that she deserves so if we can promote her a bit more I think that's a good thing and and I kind of feel famous now thanks (laughs) to us we want to cut off your money, Rebecca. But I, I kind of feel like with these four that novels... That sounded a bit, like, threatening. <laughs> this, she would like that. It's in, it's in character. There's something for everyone with these novels. If you want a mystery, if you want a road trip book, if you want a crime book, there's something there yeah, for you. Yeah, or you want to feel all of the feels. She seems like she can pretty much do anything. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what she publishes next. For sure. And, and guys, I'd really love for anyone that's, that's made it this far through our first author spotlight, I'd really love to hear what people thought of it. Yeah. Did you like looking through one author's, like all of their their back catalogue? You know, has this made you want to read? Have you read them all? Are you already a big fan? It would be really nice to to get that feedback and because and, we've never done one of these before and we've both been quite excited and it would be nice to know. 100%. How it's landed with you guys. But that's not all from us. Anyway, it's time for us to get to the next part of the show where we try to help one of our listeners find their next must-read book. Are we ready? Yes, we are ready. Our request today comes from Kelly. Hello, you lovely bunch at Novel Thoughts. My name's Kelly and I would love some book suggestions from you guys. I've currently just been jumping around between different genres and I was just about to jump into the Kathy Reichs books because I love the TV show Bones, but I'm kind of open to anything. I usually go for fiction, but I really don't mind. Thank you. So, quite a broad recommendation today. Joseph, what are you going to recommend? I am going to say if she likes Kathy Reich, mm-hmm. then maybe any novel by one of my favourite crime writers, Ruth Ware. Have you read any Ruth Ware before? I don't think I have, but I do know who she is. Okay, yeah, she's mega famous. And I'd say start with The It Girl, which is about two young women, Hannah and April, who meet at Oxford University as students and become part of a group of six very close friends. So April is the the titular it girl, and by the end of the term, she's dead. Hannah ends up giving testimony in court, which results in a man being jailed for the murder. But years later, when the same man winds up dead in prison, a journalist investigating the case comes back looking for Hannah with some new evidence about who the real murderer might be. I want to read this all over again. I just thought it was brilliant, and I think this is going to be right up Kelly Street. Okay. What's your book, Seth? So, as you seem uh, pretty open to, to any and all genres, Kelly... I'm the Bible? Go- <laughs> yeah. I'm, g- I'm going to recommend <laughs> to you The Night Boat to Tangier by Kevin Barry. You obviously mes- mentioned Kathy Reich, which says to me that you like some action in your books. I didn't necessarily want to go too obvious with a crime book. I'm looking at you, Joseph. No, I'm just kidding. That was a good recommendation. Harsh. Um, <laughs> but I did think you're going to want something to grip you. Yeah, I think this book definitely has that. Although it's wildly different to Kathy and what she does. It has got crime. It's got sex. It's got humor. It's got mystery, friendship, narcotics, sudden violence. And, and so much packed into to quite a small novel. It's a Saturday night in Ramsgate Town Centre. <laughs> 
It's centred around two old Irish gangsters. It was long-listed for the 2019 Booker. And I think it's brilliantly written. Set quite a bit in Spain, so you get that kind of hot Spanish weather. It's a brilliant, lyrical, yet gripping book that I think you might love. Sounds great. Some great recommendations there. We did a good job. We did. All right. Well, I think that's just about the end of the show. Next week, we will be talking about memoirs. Uh, I love a good memoir, so I am very excited for this. Join us. Please join us. Uh, We'll also be chatting about all the books we've read that week and dishing out some great recommendations to more of our lovely listeners. As always, links to everything we've been talking about today will be in the show notes. Please feel free to like and subscribe to the pod, tell a friend or leave us a review. It all helps. If you're looking for your next great read and you'd like to be part of the show, send us your recommendation request to ntpramsgate at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at novelthoughts underscore pod. Bye. Bye.